Amen, amen. How you guys doing today? Doing well? Good. I, I mean, I love, 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 love singing worship. I love being in the presence of God's people. Um, and even as we were singing worship, I, you know, I just started, I don't know if today, because we're going to talk about kind of this idea of making war, like, you know, what happens and different things. But, you know, as I was saying, listening to the, like the praise and worship songs that you guys, I mean, have you realized like, you know, one of the songs we were singing about, like cutting heads off and bringing the enemy. I was just like, whoa, this is intense. Like, it's like, and then we talk about like the war, talk about like we're in war, you fight my battles and you know, and then at the end, we basically sing kind of our rallying choir, like the praise song, hallelujah, right? And that, you know, when you think about it, it, it kind of took me to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, when it talks about like Christ, like the triumphal entry of Christ. And he just talks about like there, that the aroma of Christ brings about life to some and death to others. And, you know, and as I was just thinking about just even all of just what was going on, I was like, man, like, this is, like, intense, but I know oftentimes we can come in and, you know, sing the songs and kind of gloss over them, but I started thinking, I was like, and I was like, I have a question for you guys. Do you guys understand that we're in war? Do you, do you understand, do you recognize that we are in warfare, we're in war time right now? Because oftentimes it can, you know, we can dull our senses because, you know, the way we do it in a pretty way and a nice song and we sing and we're celebrating in here. But like the songs that we were singing basically is declare, um, declaring that we are actually in war, that we're in war and that in warfare that sometimes God, like we need you to fight our battles, that you are our victory, you are the person who wins for us. And it was just like, kind of overwhelming, but what I love is just even how the songs were put together. What I love is that we get, to, we know that at the end in the final cry that we will be singing hallelujah. Hallelujah. And hallelujah basically is the, is the idea of the highest praise. Hallelujah is, this is a command for the congregation to praise Jehovah. That when we talk about it, it's like it's, it is a, a victory, it's a celebration, it's, it's a reminder to you and a reminder to me, no matter where we are in life, no matter where we are in the battle, that we will ultimately get the victory. And I don't know about you, but that's really, really comforting to me. You know, we've been in this book, um, in the book of Ephesians, and we've been doing this series called In Him in him. And we talked about what, like, what does it mean to be in Christ? We've broken it up into um, basically a six-week um, series. And in this six-week six week series, we went through a series of things. We did um, a couple of weeks, a couple of weeks. Has it been six weeks? It felt like, has it been longer than six weeks? I don't know. But we've been in the series for a while, right? And we've walked through it, but in there, we took the first couple of chapters in the book of Ephesians, actually we took four weeks in the book of Ephesians chapter one and two, and we talked about we are in him, and we, the subtitle was we are his workmanship. That it talks about that in the first couple of chapters in the book of Ephesians, what, what Paul goes through, and there's not one command about what we do, except there's two commands about what we do, but it is all about what Christ has done. It talks about how he has lavished every spiritual gift in, or every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus for those that are in him. And then he goes through these first two chapters talking about how God the Father does things, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He prays for us multiple times. He goes in, and then he ultimately says, and you know what our responsibility in this is? To do two things. One is to first remember. 
Remember all that God has done for us. That we are in him. We are in Christ. And then the second one that he calls us to remember, or the second thing that he tells us, he says, be encouraged. So in the first two chapters, the only two imperatives or the only two commands that's given to us as believers is first, to remember all that he has done in Christ Jesus, and two, to don't be discouraged, but be encouraged. Right? Because, you know, in times when we live life, when we live the life that we do, when we throw out our backs by trying to work out, right? when we're trying to do positive things and end up hurting ourselves even more, right? you, you, you get frustrated, you get tired, it's easy to get discouraged. And Paul's like, no, 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 remember and be encouraged because we are his workmanship. We are his masterpiece. We were created in Christ Jesus for good works. And then he, then he goes in in chapter 3 and chapter 4 talking about what those good works are. And he says that he, those that are in him, we are now his manifold wisdom or his multifaceted wisdom so that God takes us. He takes different people, different giftings, different stories, different personalities, and he uses it for his good and for his glory. So he takes all the good things and all the bad things that we've done and he somehow works it up together for the good of those that are in Christ Jesus. And he says there's a reason why that, he is, that we are both fearfully and wonderfully made, but there's also a reason why that we're broken. There's a reason why that we have differences. There's a reason why all of these things happen so that when we all come together, that we get to show off his multifaceted wisdom. So we got some people who are, man, you're great at teaching. Some people, man, you're great at helps. You're, some people who are great at starting new things. Some people are at finishing things. Some people, like all of those things and all of your life stories and all the things that God has done has brought you to say that in him, God is displaying his manifold wisdom or his multifaceted wisdom through the church in him. What does it mean to be in him? And then in this last, basically, we talked about in him, is just like we are his children. Because he doesn't just leave us here, but he recognizes that God is our father, Jesus is our elder brother, and we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And what does that mean to be in him, right, as we express his manifold wisdom? So from chapter 4 all the way through the end of the book, in chapter 6, basically, you get about a few, about four or five therefores. And anytime when we see the word therefore, we ask the question, what is it therefore? Right? And so what he is seeing that in the first half of the book, is talking about all that Christ has done for us. The second half of the book is talking about our response to him. So we don't do the works to get Christ to do things for us. We do the work out of a response of what Christ has already done. And in Ephesians chapter 2, 8, 9, it says that, he says, for we are saved by grace, that it's a gift of God, not of works, so that no man could boast. The only one that we can brag about is Jesus. The only one that we can brag is about is Jesus. And then he says, we were saved by grace through faith. It's a gift of God, not something that we've done, but it's a gift of God, not of our works, so that no man could boast. But he's been, after he says, but we were then created for good works. Chapter 4 through 6 tells us what those good works are and what those good works look like. That it's a P-A-S. It's a response to what God has done. 
So if you take this, this letter is about spiritual bodybuilding. This letter is talking to the church in Ephesus. And if you did some study on the church of Ephesus, you would realize how much benefit and how much fruit came out of the church of Ephesus. They were producing so much fruit that, that, that like, I mean, there's books written about, written, written about it. But we see that as we get to the book of Revelations, there's one thing that they lost. They lost their love for God. And it's like, we're doing all these things and you're doing all of those things. You're stopping prophecy, I mean, stopping heresy. You're doing this, you're doing that. He says, but this one thing I have against you, you lost your first love. I think that early on in the scriptures, what we see is Paul starting probably to see some of that remnants and saying, listen, remember God's love. Remember all of what we're doing, especially in hard times, is done out of a response of what Christ has already done for you and I. Don't lose your first love. Because what ends up happening is that whenever you stop feeling like you are seen or you are loved or there's no one fighting for you, what your natural tendency is and your natural biology will do, it will begin to fight for yourself. If you're not going to fight for me, then I'll have to fight for myself. And it's a natural response because the human body, the biology is meant for survival. It's meant for survival. That's why we go into a room and we are, we're constantly asking the question, is it safe? Is it safe? And if you walked up to a building and you didn't think it was safe, would you still go in? And right. And you don't have to even think about it. It's just like that doesn't look like it's going to hold up. Or that doesn't look like it's safe. So you would not naturally do it because your biology is it's, it's taught to survive. Right? And if we don't think that God is the essence of our survival or the essence of our victories that is fighting on our behalf, then we have to fight somewhere else. We will then take on by other, any means necessary approach. And so we, we see that. And so what Paul does is that as he's wrapping up this book, he's basically saying, hey, listen, we are about to go into war. Right? In Ephesians chapter 6 and 10, he says, he basically tells us, put on the armor of God. We are in war. So he tells us the next week we will close out this series in that and talking about just the fact that we are in war and what we need to do in war. But before he tells us the resources and the tools and the armor that we have to go into war, he says there's first there's a posture in which we have to go into war that we need to recognize. We've started this a few weeks ago because it was, it's, it's the last therefore in the passage is in um, Ephesians chapter 5. 17 and um, 25, and where it talks about this idea of what Christ is doing. And, and what he is doing right there is that he's given you and I, ultimately, a game plan. And it's not going to be on the screen, but I want to read for you um, this verse. Wesley did a great job last week talking about that when we talk about husbands and wives, and today we're talking, you know, husbands and wives and sons and daughters, fathers and mothers and parents relationship and then the employee-employee relationship and all that. As we start looking at that, he's, this is all coming out of an example and application of this therefore. In, verse, in chapter 5, verse 15, this was this command. He gives us, here's the game plan of how we engage in spiritual warfare, right? And so he tells us in 15, he says, pay careful attention then how you walk. How you walk. How, not as unwise people making the most of the time because the days are evil. 
So don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. And don't get drunk with wine, which, want, which leads to reckless living, but be filled with the, by the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always to everything to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting one to another in the fear of Christ. And so early on, basically what we see is that Paul gives the game plan. He says, if we want to walk with wisdom, if we want to walk wisely, then there's a few things that we need to do. And he juxtaposes the a positive and a negative example for, from about seven things. He tells us, Pay careful attention of how you walk. Walk as wise, not as unwise. He tells us, make the most of your time, right? Don't, don't just waste your time. Make the most of your time. He says, understand the Lord's will. He says, don't get drunk with wine, but instead allow the Spirit of God to fill you, right? So don't, don't get drunk with wine. Don't let that control you. Let God's Spirit control you. Let Him fill you. Then he says, speak the truth or speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So we're meant to encourage one another in that way. Giving thanks always to everybody. Submitting, and the last one is submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. And so he gives us the game plan. Here's how we do it. Here's how we walk in a manner that's worthy of the gospel, worthy of the Lord, which he says multiple times throughout this text. This is how you do it. But what I love in the scriptures is that he recognizes is that it's easy to just give an imperative, but it's, it's a lot harder to actually go and do it. It's a lot harder to actually go live it, right? And so he tells us to do that. Why? Why is it hard? Mike Tyson has a famous quote. He says, everybody has a game plan until you get punched in the mouth, right? And that's really what happens right here is that everybody comes in with a game plan. You leave here today and it's like this time, this week, we're going to do it. Even later on tonight, I'm going to have this conversation or do this thing. And then you have a game plan of how calm you're going to be until you get punched in the mouth. And as soon as you get punched in the mouth, that game plan changes. Right? And then life happens. Life happens. It reminded me of a story reminded me of a story of, um, of a pack of mules. A pack of mules were coming, and every day they had these three simple things. All they, had, they lived in kind of green pastures right near the water, and every day they were just like, all we have to do is just eat um, the green pastures, graze the green pastures, drink the water. It's great, and just live and be merry. Right? But there was a problem. Right in the neighboring woods, there was a pack of wolves that came. And almost every night, the pack of wolves would come down and they would cause, they would basically try to kill them. But in that, the, what the mules would do, they would start going and they would just start kicking, right? Just trying to kick the wolves, but the wolves weren't bothered because they were agile and able to move around the wolves. So, but instead of hitting the wolves, what they ended up doing, they started hitting one another. And so they started hurting one another. And it wasn't until one day, one of the leaders, let's just say one of the mules, the leader of the mules says, hey, why, why don't we do a certain thing? Why don't we put our heads together? You know, whenever this war, whenever this time comes. And so the next time the wolves came, what they did was they all came together and they put their heads all in the center and then they were all kicking out. And that time they were unable, the wolves weren't able to get any of them, right? And so what, what, what I guess the reason why I'm telling that story is that is that oftentimes what ends up happening is when you don't have a leader, 
when you don't have someone orchestrating, when you don't have kind of um, understanding of who you go to in times of frustration, times of um, matter, um, times of battle or hard times, what ends up doing is that you go into survival mode. And in survival mode, what ends up happening is that you stop caring about your brother and your sister. And you start having the mindset that has brought so many killings amongst so many in, in our last few days, I mean, in the last years, is that you have this mindset, I'm going home tonight. And then you start responding and you stop caring about others. And there's so much crossfire that ends up happening that we end up getting what we call friendly fire taking place, that, that we get um, attacked by people who are not supposed to attack us. And ultimately, what ends up happening is that we're just in... We're just in survival mode. We're just trying to survive. And so this is what, so Paul establishes this. He says, listen, I've given you what you're called to do. I'm, I'm laying it out very clearly to be filled with the spirit, to walk in wisdom, to sing, encourage one another, to submit to one another. He says, but I understand that it's hard, so let me give you some understanding of what that looks like. And then he takes basically from that, he takes us three, he gives us three sets of people. He talks about what does that look like, this game plan look like in the context of marriage, what does that look like in the context of your nuclear family and your parents and what that looks like in your job? So instead of basically today talking about all the simply like, oh, here's how to be a better parent or here's how to be, um, be a better employer, employee or a better employer or here's how to be a better child, even though I thought about just focusing just on that because all of my kids are here. Um, but instead of doing that, it's just like, like, Understanding what is the posture that he is saying when we, in the, in, in the time of warfare, when we are able to look to our leader, and our true leader is Jesus, when we are able to look to our leader. So he addresses these, these different groups. And so basically there's three different kind of subsets that makes up six different groups. And so he's basically saying, what does these principles look like applied to all of life? That this is not the totality of life. He just gives us subsets to say, this is what the, uh, the posture of what that looks like in our life. Because ultimately what he's, he's saying is that whether you're a husband or a wife, whether you're male or a female, a son or a daughter, a father or a mother, an employee or an employer, we are all called to be filled with the Spirit and, can, and compared by the love of God. We, that is what God is calling us to do. So, real quickly, what we're going to do is we're going to spend some time and spend about 15 minutes in just looking. We're just going to look at um, chapter 6, verses um, 1 through 9. 1 through 9. All right, so again, we have the background of the therefore that was going on in 15 to 21 of chapter 5, and now we're going to see another example. He says, children, obey your parents in the Lord because this is right. Let's just stop there for a minute. He says, children, obey your parents in the Lord because this is what I was thinking about just preaching that and just going home. But it's just like, just go apply that verse and then we can come back to all the other things. But because this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the commandment, the first commandment with the promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may have long life in the land. 
Fathers, don't stir up anger in your children, but bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your human masters with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as you would Christ. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing God's will from your heart. Serve with a good attitude as the Lord, as unto the Lord, and not to people, knowing that whatever good each one does, each one does, slave or free, he will receive this back from the Lord. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way without threatening them, because you know that that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism in him. There's three things basically I want us to see in here today that if we are going um, to walk together, right, um, we are going to walk together with wisdom. There's three things that we have to do. We have to, number one, we have to walk with humility. Number two, we have to walk with reverence. And then finally, we have to walk with grace that we have to walk with humility, we have to walk with reverence, and we have to walk with grace. One of the things that we first understand that Paul is saying, that as he brings out these six subsets, that through all the way through chapter 5, right, in chapter 5, um, 22, he talks about wives, chapter 5, 20, um, I think 24, 25, husbands, and then 6, 1, um, then he talks about children, then he goes 6, 4, fathers, um, slaves, slave masters. He creates and he presents these kind of as archetypes of different people to capture all of what life is about. He brings this about um, in this first passage. And one of the things that I think that he's bringing out that we got to understand is that if we are to walk together, we have to first walk with humility. What does that mean? What it ultimately means is that we are all peers at the foot of the cross. There's no big eyes and there's no little U's based upon however you grade big eyes and little U's. Um, James chapter 1, again, when it talks about, he says, count it joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, that I'm putting you in trial. Don't just simply ask for delivery from that trial, but instead, hypostasis, remain under and ask for wisdom. And he says, if anybody lacks wisdom, let him ask from God because he gives it liberally. But then he goes on and he says, he says, basically in my paraphrased version, he says, those that are privileged, you need to think more lowly of yourselves. Those of you who think that you're God's gift to the earth, you need to have a lower view of yourself. But those that are marginalized and disenfranchised, you need to think more highly of yourself. And so what Paul is saying is that the gospel is applied to different people in different ways. If you think that you're all that, that you're God's gift to society, or that you have a few things, or that you don't need certain people, you need to come down a little. But if you think that you have nothing to give, you need to think more highly of yourself. Why? Because when it comes to Jesus, that we're all peers at the foot of the cross. 
There's no big eyes. There's no little use. And so Paul uses, takes that idea of James and basically says, no matter if you are the one that is responsible or the one that's not responsible, that you got to understand, and he uses this term over and over again, we are all, it is all to be seen as we are seen in Christ. In him. He's the only true superstar in all of this. So it's only about him that is in Christ that we see this thing. And so this is the reason why over and over again you see a modifier in each and every one of these, these quotes. Because Paul is trying to communicate who's the real, who is the real person. And so it's important that we recognize that, that we are all peers and we are to come as someone who is both giving and receiving. Paul, in Romans chapter 1, he says, man, Rome, I've been hindered. I can't wait to come and I can't wait to see you. And he says, he says part of it is because I can't wait to give, but ultimately I also can't wait to receive. And that's the posture that each and every one of us have to have when we go, that we are both fearfully and wonderfully made, and we got so much to give, but we are also broken and limited, and we are in need of one another, right? You see, the problem with the Declaration of Independence is that some of us have started to believe that, that we think that the goal of our lives is that where we can be independent from anybody. And many of us define success when we accomplish that. When I don't need anybody, when I don't, like, when I'm financially off, on, on my own, when I, I relationally don't need anybody, right? Because in some way, we feel like we begin to protect ourselves when we don't need anyone else. But that's just not what God has called us to do. He has put a limp in each and every one of us to remind us, no matter if you have five talents or one talent, that we're all needy that our talents is not enough to accomplish what God is calling us to do. And so he starts off with that very point that if we're going to walk with humility, if we're going to walk together with one another, then we have to walk with humility. The second thing is that we got to walk with reverence. We got to walk with reverence. And, and that, const, that, that, that last thing that we saw in 521, it says, submitting one to another. And as Wesley talked about last week, basically that what the, the commentators do later on is basically are, they add the verse when it says, wives submit to your husbands. Ultimately what they're saying is that they're, they're borrowing the verb of submitting one to another, borrowing that verb and applying it to the next verb because that sentence structure did not have a verb. And so it says, wives, submitting to your own husbands. But what we lose in all of that is that throughout chapter, the end of chapter five, what Paul is referring to in the last thing that he called us to is that we are to submit one to another. And so what submission one to another looks like in the context of these variety of different things, what does submission one to another look like when it comes, you know, in the, in the marriage? What does submission look like when it comes to parenting? What does submission to one another look like to when it comes to um, the workplace? What does that look like. And so as he lays that out, he says it looks like a different things. And if you notice the position on each one, based upon kind of how society sets us, each one, we have the person who is to be submissive 
as the first one that is identified, and then the person who's the one who's supposed to be responsible as the second person in the thing. So it talks about wives, submit to the husband, but then it says husbands, right? And then it says, oh, it says husbands, love your wives. And then it says children, obey. Fathers, don't irritate. Right? But then it goes on and says, Mass of slaves to your masters, obey, but masters in the same way understand that you are not to also in the same way that the way with the fathers, the same thing. You don't irritate, but train them. And so in there, he gives us this reason of this understanding of the, uh, just a breakdown. And he says, Here's a couple of reasons why this is important for us not to miss in this breakdown. I think the first thing is this, is that our level of responsibility will determine our different needs. Our level of responsibility will determine the different needs. Let me uh, say it this way, that when we talk about the, the, either the church is not like family, but it is family. You know, we've, you've heard that said um, before, and if you haven't heard it, just come in a couple of weeks, you'll hear it a thousand times because we're going into our DNA series. But the church is not like family, it is family. And what we say about family is God is our father, Jesus is our elder brother, and we are brothers and sisters in Christ. That we're not like family, we are family, right? And so I grew up in a family of four. Um, my mom and my dad, they raised us. And I remember, and, and part of this I have to apologize to my oldest brother, because my, we're all about three years apart. So uh, I, am, I have an older brother, then it's me, and then show is my younger brother but i know all of you guys think that he's the older brother because he looks older than me but i am the older i am the older um brother so i'm three years older than him and then we have a younger sister that is six years so we're about three years apart in each and every one of us and so whenever we recognize kind of family like siblings family we know that there's no sibling that is more like important than any other sibling right Right? Yeah, you know, sometimes you, you think that it's all according if you talk about me. But, but we recognize that. But how many of you guys, how many older siblings are in here? The oldest. We've got a few of the oldest. How many times have you been left to be responsible for your siblings? But in the same vein, you've also been told that you're not in control of your siblings. So it's like, all right, so you want me to be responsible for them but I'm not over them. That's confusing, right? Because that's what we think is that authority or when, we, when it comes to submission, it's about how we are playing our role in what has been given to us. So as a sibling, that you may carry a different responsibility than the other responsibility. I actually loved being the middle child in that time because I was like, I wasn't primarily the one responsible. And I can also be the shield and blame my older brother every single time something went wrong. Well, what did you tell me? Right? Right? Because there's not a level of responsibility that takes place. And so what we see is that we were all siblings, all had different roles, all had different, and different responsibilities. There was no greater or equal. We were, just, we were complementary in our responsibilities. We had different roles, but we were all equal in, that, in those roles. And so in here, basically, he says that when you were in the role of the person 
that was that like because I'm supposed to you know they say listen to your brother, right? And you know what that meant. You ain't the boss of me, right? As soon as they're they like you ain't the boss of me, right? And so you had that, but as soon as you did, your natural flesh takes over, and what do you naturally do? Right? And so to that person, you want to be disobedient. And so to that person, he says, listen, Reggie's not better than you. He's not over you. Like all those things. But however, let me just recognize and say this to you, that listen, for you, please just submit to your brother. Just obey. Don't be that. Don't be that to him. Right? And then, but if you are the person that are, that's being, like that is saying, you know, listen to your brother, what do you want to know? You want to know that your older sibling or that older brother is, has your best interest at heart. You want to know that. Because if they're your older sibling, who's not better than you, but he starts lording it over you, and he doesn't see you, and he doesn't care about you, and it's only about being boss, then you're like, you're missing it. And so to the older people in each one, he tells them, husbands, lay down your life. Fathers, train up, raise up. Employers, in the same way. Like, understand, why? Understand that you also have a master. You are not ultimately in charge here. You see, most of us are seeking positions and seeking authority because we think that authority gives us reverence. But the whole point of the passage is the only one that is to be revered is Christ. The beginning of wisdom is fear of the Lord, not fear of you. So part of what we're understanding is that when we're in all of these battles about who can lead and not lead, and we're missing the whole point that each one is called. When we talk about mutual submission, it's about our responsibility to bring about maturity in Christ, about walking together in a way that's worthy of Christ. That's what this is about. And so he says to those who, who is not primarily responsible right now, he says, understand there's a, there's a certain posture just don't, 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 don't be that. But those who are understand that, ha that you have, why? Because we all are to walk in the fear of the Lord, the beginning of wisdom. When we understand that mutual submission is the goal of the Christian, that we submit one to another in fear or in reverence of the Lord, we stop fighting for ourselves and stop fighting for positions Right? Because I remember also growing up, there was many times when my parents left and, and all that, there was this like, Reggie was like, I don't want to be the one responsible. You want to take it? Right? And so many times that's the, that's the case, is that we want responsibility until the ball drops, until we all get punched in the face. But then when we get punched in the face, the question is, is who are we looking to? Are we just simply looking to our human? Are we looking to Christ? And he says that, that, so he says, and he ends it off, says, this is important because in light of eternity, whenever we get on the other side, you, God will show no partiality. And here's the thing. You will get your accolades on this side of heaven. Oh man, he was so great. He was such a boss. He was all these, then you get, and that's what you would get. If that's your goal, to get all your flowers on this side of heaven, 
than keep spending in that way. But see, we have to shift from a spending mentality to an investment mentality. Spending is about what we do and how we spend our time, our talent, and our treasures for the purpose of getting an immediate return. We spend money, we spend time, we do it and it's like, we need to get it now. But investing is about the things that we do that we may not get an immediate return, but we will get something in the future. And what Christ is ultimately saying is that the reason why we are to have an investment mentality when it comes to this is because that in the end, on, when you stand before the Bema seat of Christ, all of the things that you are clamoring for on earth, I, he doesn't show any of that partiality. He doesn't care about you being the president, the CEO, whether you were the employer or the employee, whether like he does, he wants to know is what did you do with what I gave you? And how did you revere me? Did you trust? Right? And this is the reason why he tells us that we, if we are going to walk together with Christ, we have to walk with humility. We have to walk with reverence to him. And then finally, we have to walk with grace. We've already talked about what grace is when we talked about it in Ephesians chapter 2. We, we basically, grace is two primary things. Is one, it's unmerited favor. You know, a lot of times we put it as God's riches at Christ's expense. Right? It's nothing that you did, nothing you earned, it's nothing you deserve, but it's God's riches. God did all the work, but he made it available to you. It's God's riches, but it's at Christ's expense. It did cost someone. It's not cheap. Right? Money wasn't made on trees. Grace wasn't made in that way. It's God's riches at Christ's expense. So it's one, it's unmerited favor, but the other thing is divine enablement. It's the very thing, it's the very motivation that helps us to do the very things that we do. Right? Because it's divine enablement because we don't work to try to maintain God's favor. We work because we have been favored. God has favored us and we work out of that. And so in here, I think it's really important for us not to miss is what the whole book of Ephesians, as he's concluding, this is the last thing that he's talking about, you know, given this application. He's like, don't miss the entire message of the whole book. The message of the whole book is that the first two chapters, the first three chapters, really, is this where he says, listen, God the Father has chosen you and adopted you. God the Son has redeemed you and united you. God the Spirit has sealed you and guaranteed you. God has lavished everything. He has spared no expense to bring you. Right, Paul prays for you. He reminds you. And he says, all I need you to do is remember. Remember that is you are saved by grace, that it's a gift of God, that you're not of yourself so that no man can both understand this, but you have been created for good works that God has called you to go and to be about things. And so how do we do that though? What's the posture of our heart? And here it is, is that there's three things and we'll end with this three things real quickly. Three things that we got to know about God, because how we view God will determine how you walk in life. That's ultimately what this book is talking about. How you view God will determine how you will walk in this life. If you don't have a proper view of God or a proper understanding of his love, you will begin to figure out, try to figure out how to compensate for the areas you don't feel like he's meeting. And there's three things that we have. Number one is that we got to have a secure love. A secure love. 
It is important for us to understand that when God talks about an agape love, that's what it is. His love says that he will never leave us. He will never forsake us. In Romans chapter 8, he tells us that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. He also tells us in Romans chapter 8 and 1, he says, there is now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. This is right after Paul saying that, man, the very things I want to do, I find myself um, can't do. And the things I don't want to do, I find myself doing all the more. He says, what I've come to is the conclusion is this. He says, oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me? And the response is Christ. He says, there is now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Then we go into one of the greatest chapters in the whole Bible in Romans chapter 8, where he talks about what God has done, how he adopts us, how he doesn't just adopt us and just get rid, get rid of us, but he adopts us in a way that we are able to call him Abba, Daddy, Father, Abba, Father, and then he wraps us in his love and he tells us that love is not the type of love that oftentimes for some of our dads and some of our moms and some of our people where it was just like when you're doing good, then like I love you when you're doing bad, then I don't want to be with you. Not that type of love, but that type of love that can never be separated, that this love is secure for those that are climbed up in the lap of Jesus, those that have, put it, that have stopped trusting in themselves but now is only trusting in Jesus, right? He says there's a security, a secure love. Why? How do we know that? My definition of love is love is a commitment of my will to your needs and best interests, regardless of the cost. Love is a commitment of my will to your needs and best interests, regardless of a cost. Love is not just a feeling. It's not Cupid shooting you in the butt. I know we grow up says, I, you know, I love you, but I'm not in love with you. Like, I don't, that's not love. Love is a commitment of my will to your needs. How committed was Christ that he sent, every, he sent everything? He laid it all down. He's willing to give it all to secure the love, that our love is secure. God is committed to never leave us, never forsake us. Do you treat God? Do you really believe God? Do you really view God in that way? Because if you don't, you'll end up fighting for yourself. The security of his love. But second thing is the strength of his hope, having a strong hope. What God gives us, it gives me the ability to know that at the end, like we were singing in the songs, that we can talk about all the battles, we can talk about all the fights, and in the middle of all the battles and all the fights, we can grieve, we can lament, we can be angry, we can be sad, but we can also rest because we don't grieve as one without what? Hope. We don't grieve without hope. You, got, you understand how strong and how powerful hope is? Where do you place your ultimate confidence? God is saying, like, it's, hopefully it's in me. So there's so many passages all the way to um, Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, he says, don't worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink. He says, don't I care for the lilies, don't I for the birds? He's like, where's your hope? He says, but first seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Trust in me. And ultimately, he says, hey, Malachi, chapter 3, he says, listen, you guys stop giving me your lame. Stop giving me your leftovers. Stop doing, being like with the rational stuff. He says, bring me your best. Bring me your everything. He says, and you will see how I will pour out everything. That's hope. Let's even go back. The whole Pentateuch. We look at Genesis chapter 1. We talk about old earth, new earth, and all these things. That's not what the Genesis is trying to answer. The first five books of the Old Testament are ultimately trying to establish hope to a people. Think about it. When was the book written? Those books written. Moses penned these books. 
Right, right after they are, they've been in the wilderness for about 40 years wandering. Why are they in the wilderness for 40 years wandering? Because the previous generation didn't trust God to go into the promised land. They were like, there are giants in the land, and if we go in there, they'll kill us all. So God was like, I'm done. The only people that are going is those people who put their hope, put their trust in me. And he said, Aaron and her. Those are the only two that were going into the promised land. So during this 40 years, Moses sits down and he pins. God gives him the message to pin. He writes in Genesis and Leviticus and Exodus and Numbers, Deuteronomy. What is he writing? Basically, he starts off in Deuteronomy chapter one. He says, what was supposed to take an 11 day journey ended up taking 40 years later. Why are we here? And he says, because of a lack of hope. And he says, I want to give you hope. And the message of the first five books of the Pentateuch is this. Even when we have been faithless, God has been faithful. Even when we mess up, God somehow finds a way to accomplish his will. And if you watch the first five books of the, of the Old Testament, that's the message. And so what's the message at the end of Deuteronomy? It says, therefore, listen, those of you who were children, when your parents didn't have the hope in Christ, have hope. And then what does he say in Joshua chapter 1 as they're about to enter into the promised land? He says, in the same way that I was with Moses, I will be with you. He's giving them hope. Hope is so strong. Do you know, I don't know if you guys remember LeBron James years ago when he went back to Cleveland. Years ago, went back to Cleveland. Just the hope of the king returning back to Cleveland. Do you know how much money it made that city? $500 million. According to the Bleacher Report, $500 million just by him, just the hope of LeBron James coming back to Cleveland. And that was going to renew the city and renew all of that that takes place. So much of your faith is built on your hope. And that's what he says that in Christ, you got to understand that you are secure in his love and you ought to have a strong hope. Why? Because no matter where you are in life, whether you're thinking you're winning or losing right now, at the end, if you are in him, you win. And we can celebrate and we will sing. You will get your hallelujah. It's like watching a ball game or whatever and you already know who won and they're down by 20 at the time. It's like, I don't, they're down by a lot of points right now. How in the world do they come back and win? But you already have been guaranteed that they're gonna win because you've already seen the final score. The Bible is letting us know that we have already seen the final score and we have hope. And then finally, a significant purpose, a significant purpose. We all have a need to belong and matter. We all have a need to, to have a life that's more important than ourselves. The reason why we are not, the reason why we are not raptured into the heaven is that we are here to both glorify God and to help his children to help his people, right? That we, that this was a book to the church of Ephesus. It wasn't written to you as individuals. Some of our Americanized Christianity that we go and we read the Bible only for ourselves. There are very few books, if any, it's some debate that were written to one individual, right? Luke, Acts, maybe Theophilus, you see, you got some of the pastoral epistles that were written to Titus and Timothy, but they were written for the context of the local church. That the Bible was written for the we, not the me. 
And so part of what we have to understand is, is that when we're reading and we're understanding and we're interpreting the reason why there's order and there's structure and complementary and complementary gifts and those things is for the purpose of the we, is that when we are in hard times and whenever there's warfare coming, we got to know who's ultimately in charge, and that's Christ. But then also understand our responsibilities so that I don't end up trying to do your responsibilities and you end up trying to do my responsibilities and we end up going over one another. So we have, there's order to these things and there's a posture that we have but ultimately our purpose is to bring honor to bring weight to bring glory to God that we live for something greater than ourselves that is the reason why again whether a husband or a father or a wife or mother brother sister employee or employer it doesn't matter because our heart's posture is more important is more important than our behavior modification. And Paul, I believe Paul is not looking at these letters or looking at specifically these uh, chapter five and giving us the examples to tell us exactly what to do in modifying our behavior. Instead, he said there's a posture that we are to have when we're in the middle of warfare. You see, but here's the thing. If you don't believe in your warfare, then all of this is, doesn't matter. If our warfare, warfare only stop, starts and stops in, in our songs, when we're singing strange songs about taking heads off of people and, and God bringing it, I'm just still on that. I'm just like, that's weird. He brings, like, what is that? He brings their head. You didn't write the song, but I'm just like, <laughs> do you guys want the heads of your enemies? Like, anyway, this is, I'm off. We need to pray because I'm done. But, but that's our prayer. And I hopefully, like as we end next week and we start talking about putting on the armor of God, more than anything, more than anything, you would understand the posture that God wants us. And that posture only comes if we truly believe that we have a secure love, a strong hope, and a significant purpose. Only if we, are, we empty ourselves and we are filled with God's spirit. Part of this message and part of this whole series is calling you guys, when we talk about being in him, is to stop, stop striving and start trusting. Start trusting. He is worthy. He is able. He can do far and abundantly more than you can ever imagine or you can ever hope for. But part of that is, is you have to trust him. You have to trust him. Right? You have to trust him. Father, we are thankful. Thanks for worshiping with us. For more information about Blueprint Church, visit us online at blueprintchurch.org. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Blueprint Church. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Sunday.